Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 42. You have Bibles available and open, I hope, as we move through this text together. Welcome to Christ the King. We're 20 chapters into our series of 1 Samuel. And as I read it, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is really Jonathan's chapter. David, of course, figures prominently, as David will do for some time, as does Saul. But it's Jonathan who comes to the fore. We've already met Jonathan. If you've been here or if you know the book of 1 Samuel a bit, Jonathan is King Saul's son. A fact that the narrator in chapter 20 is very keen not to let us forget because 12 times, if you count them in this chapter, Saul is referred to as Jonathan's father. And twice we find reference to Jonathan as Saul's son, which matters because Jonathan has a decision to make regarding the kingdom, doesn't he? Or maybe since he's already made a decision, he has a decision to stand by, which, if you're the son of the king, entails a decision regarding your father, doesn't it? We know from previous studies in 1 Samuel something of Jonathan's character. We've already seen and celebrated Jonathan's faith as far back as chapter 14, but I submit to you that it's in chapter 20 that we discover the true greatness of Jonathan. And that that greatness is perhaps seen most clearly in the fact that after chapter 20, Jonathan fades out of the narrative of 1 Samuel. He must increase, but I must decrease we could say. Because Jonathan's basically not part of the narratives after this chapter in any significant way. There's this brief appearance we get a few chapters down the road in, in chapter 23, verses 16 to 18, but then nothing until the end, until 1 Samuel 31, when Jonathan dies. Or rather, when Jonathan struck down, actually, because it's there that we read about the Philistines overtaking Saul and his sons. So that chapter 31, verse 6 says, Thus Saul died and his three sons on the same day together. Jonathan would come to realize in our text today that faithfulness to the Lord and to the Lord's Christ, to the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's King, comes at a cost. But then faithfulness to the Christ often does, right? The words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and following, listen. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father 
and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, says the Lord's anointed one. Renounce all that he has? Hate his own father? I wonder if Jesus was thinking about Jonathan. Let's consider this chapter together, shall we? You remember where we've been now in the last couple of weeks since the defeat of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, sort of the major pillar in the, in the middle of, of 1 Samuel. Since 1 Samuel 17, it's basically been a study of the contrasting responses of love towards David with the specific response of King Saul to hate David. Three times in the last two weeks, Saul has tried to thrust his spear through David. Twice he's tried to send David on such a dangerous mission that the Philistines would kill him, he hopes. Three times he had enlisted his servants in various ways to do away with David. But as Saul himself had recognized, the Lord was with David. None of Saul's schemes had succeeded. By the end of chapter 19, if you were here last week, you saw how the Spirit of God himself had come against Saul. And he lay naked all day and all night. Then David fled. Verse 1 of our text says, It's the beginning of a long season of David fleeing, of David suffering as the anointed one before he will be enthroned. Then David fled, it says, from Naioth in Ramah, where he had been with Samuel, you recall. And exactly where does he need to go? The answer is, wherever Jonathan is. That's probably Gebeah, but the text doesn't even say the place. Because the important thing is, Jonathan's there. But why is that? Why does David seek out Jonathan in his flight from Saul. You see, why seek out the king's son when you're fleeing from the king? Well, you know, if you've been with us, it's because Jonathan had made a covenant with David. Remember that from chapter 18? In fact, if you want, turn back there a few pages or a page, depending on the size print, to chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Because this is essential to seeing how things now develop in chapter 20. 18 verse 1, as soon as he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and bow and his belt. Remember that? I pointed out then, and it's so important now to see again, that it was Jonathan who made the covenant with David. And if you remember, we deduced from Jonathan's actions there at that time 
that this commitment involved in some way Jonathan renouncing his right to Saul's throne, handing over that right to David. That's why he strips himself of his robe and his armor and his sword and his belt. Why is David looking for Jonathan? It's because of the covenant. That's why David flees now to Jonathan. And in this, Jonathan's chapter, it is that covenant now reaffirmed and soon to be extended, in fact, as we'll see. It's that that's in focus in chapter 20. The word covenant itself showed up twice in verses 8 and then again in verse 16 in this chapter. The first time it was referencing back to what we just read in chapter 18. The second time it's an expansion of the covenant as we'll see. It's not the only thing that talks about covenant. You have provisions and oaths in verses 12 to 17. You have Yahweh being named as the covenant guardian in verse 23. You have Saul knowing something of Jonathan's commitment to David in verses 30 and 31. You have Jonathan's very parting words in verse 42. All of it rings in the same way. It's the covenant that thematically dominates this chapter. And the point is that it was Jonathan who made it. Right? And I know I've said that already, but it bears repeating because chapter 20 will only make sense if we keep clear in our minds that it's Jonathan who has the position of power in this chapter. David seeks recourse in the covenant, but David isn't the king yet. He's a popular and successful warrior. People love him, but he's not the king. He refers to himself as Jonathan's servant, doesn't he? He bows before Jonathan three times near the end of the chapter. And back in our text in verse 1, where we, where we are, we read that David came and said before Jonathan. Even that wording, before Jonathan. Why before Jonathan? Because David's the subordinate here. David's the loyal subject. David's the servant. He said before Jonathan, son of the king, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? This isn't David whining or something. This is David's formal protest to the king's son about the king's threats to his life. Remember last week, you already know what Jonathan thinks about this question from the beginning of chapter 19. Last week, here's chapter 19, verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because David has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. And in fact, do you remember that speech by Jonathan had resulted in a vow in verse 6 of chapter 19, a vow from Saul that David wouldn't be killed. That didn't last very long, as you know from last week. All David had to do was go kill a few more Philistines and Saul's jealousy kicks in. <laughs> but evidently, Jonathan wasn't aware of what David had been through in the rest of chapter 19. So that David's complaint at the beginning of chapter 20, where we are now, is that Jonathan's father has broken his vow without cause. So 
Listen again to what Jonathan says here in response in verse 2. Frankly, it's a bit naive, but... Far be it, far from it, Jonathan says, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Except it was so. The last Jonathan had heard about the matter was Saul's oath. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan believes his father. Don't miss that. This whole chapter is about Jonathan coming to understand the depth of what's happening. Jonathan believed his father, but Jonathan had been deceived. David knows that. Verse 3, but David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. It's true. Jonathan loves David, so Jonathan consents to assist David however he can. He says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. David proposes then this test scenario that will reveal Saul's mind. And you, you heard Ron read that very well a bit ago. The new moon, the beginning of the new month, the occasion for various festivities in the Jewish calendar. And David, as an esteemed warrior and Saul's son-in-law, would be expected to join the king at his table at the new moon festivities no matter what had gone down in recent days. So David has this plan. He'll intentionally skip it. He'll skip the dinner. He'll have Jonathan give a story about him needing to be back in Bethlehem for this yearly sacrifice. And then we'll see what Saul's response is, Jonathan. If you're Jonathan, what are you, what are you thinking? All of this, if you think about it, is a lot to ask of the king's son, right? On what basis can David justify such a request as this? Well, we're told explicitly on what basis he makes the request in verse 8 of the text. David says, Jonathan, therefore deal kindly with your servant. For you, Jonathan, have brought your servant, that's David, into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? You have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. The only reason David could turn to Saul's son when under Saul's attack was because of the covenant Jonathan had made, a covenant in which Yahweh was witness to and guardian of his promises. And the ESV translation here obscures somewhat the point of what's going on. But the point is that David expects Jonathan to act with what in Hebrew is called chesed. Hebrew people here who know Hebrew, you know this term. Even if you know no Hebrew, you may have heard this term. David expects chesed. 
even in this circumstance. Why? Because of their covenant. Chesed is the Hebrew word behind the translation the ESV here has, deal kindly, in verse 8. But it's such an important word in the Old Testament that I'm telling you what it sounds like in Hebrew. Probably many of you have heard it before. Almost 250 times chesed is used in the Old Testament. Often describing the Lord himself. Sometimes describing people. Almost always it is related to a formal covenant. To a covenant that has has codified, if you will, that chesed, that love, even as the covenant itself required that love to be formed, as we saw in chapter 18, when, when Jonathan loved David and made a covenant with David. Chesed is translated lots of ways. It's usually translated mercy in the King James. It's translated steadfast love most frequently in the RSV or, or the ESV that we use here. It's translated loving kindness in the New American Standard. It's sometimes simply translated love in the NIV. All of which are fine. The term carries the ideas of love, compassion, affection. But usually, critically, with the additional connotation of loyalty, reliability, faithfulness. One scholar writes, Chesed often has that flavor. It's not merely love, but loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. It's close to the heart here because Yahweh himself uses this word to describe himself to his people. He does that in texts like Exodus 34, verse 6, where the chesed, the loving kindness of God, is ultimately the only recourse of God's own people. This is what David is asking for. He appeals to Jonathan to treat him with devoted love. He has reason to believe Jonathan will do so because Jonathan promised to be in a covenant of Yahweh with him. A covenant that was itself the expression of his great love for David, as you recall from chapter 18. In David's world, there's one earthly refuge still intact. It's Jonathan. Because there was covenant. There David could expect chesed, brothers and sisters, We always run to the covenant. Verse 9, And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? See, David now, David's pressing for the specific assurance that Saul will respond to that should Saul respond to David's absence, as David thinks he will, at this monthly dinner, he wants to know that Jonathan won't abandon David, but will inform him. Which becomes a bit surprisingly now the point at which the greatness of Jonathan begins to show itself. Because Jonathan sees things more clearly than we even knew. 
come, let us go out into the field, he says. We can't be overheard talking about this. And we're there in verse 12 now, and you just see in verses 12 and 13a, make clear that Jonathan will do exactly what David has asked. The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness, he says. Whatever happened, Jonathan would disclose all to David. That's all David had asked for. But then we learn something very significant beginning in verse 13b. It turns out that Jonathan, in making his covenant with David, had more in mind than just the present situation. Jonathan was looking to the future. Jonathan knew who David was. May the Lord be with you, he said in verse 13b, as he has been with my father, or better, I think, would be to translate this, as he was with my father. This is more than just a pious wish that Jonathan has for David. Jonathan understands something that may not yet have been clear even to David. That the Spirit of God who had rushed upon David on the day of his anointing in Bethlehem had departed from Saul. The Lord had been with Saul for the purpose of being king. We saw that earlier. Saul had been the one the Lord had chosen. That's over now. For Jonathan to ask that the Lord be with David as he had been with Saul is simply to ask that David should become king. Jonathan's confidence is that David will be king, God's king. This might not have been a total surprise to us, given the way Jonathan had already given David his robes, but Jonathan's not done yet. David is focused on Saul's threats. Jonathan's way beyond that. Jonathan is looking to the future reign of David. So he has two more things to ask of him. Verse 14, if I am still alive, that is, when this happens... When the Lord is with you, as he has been with my father, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. You know what that Hebrew word is behind steadfast love there? It's chesed. Jonathan asks David, the tables turn. Jonathan asks David for the same thing David had asked Jonathan. Only Jonathan's request now is in the future when what's happened, when David's the one who'll have the royal authority. Not Jonathan. You see, Jonathan knows what happens when new kings come into power in the ancient world. They wipe out the descendants of the former king. That's what they do. David won't do that. We'll see David's faithful to that promise in 2 Samuel. That's the first request. But even that's not all. Because astonishingly, Jonathan seems to have seen that David's kingdom would be forever. Look at verse 15. I mean, here these two guys are in, out in the field, right? And do not cut off your steadfast love. There's that chesed word again. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. 
when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, from the face of the earth. Where is he getting this? What did Jonathan understand here? This is the first allusion in all of Samuel to the international scope of David's future kingdom. It's sure not the last mention of this in 1st and 2nd Samuel. But it's Jonathan who sees it. And in the future that Jonathan sees, David would no longer be threatened by enemies. And you have to remember that Saul has declared himself to be David's enemy. We've been told Saul was David's enemy continually, the text says. Jonathan's not clear on that point yet, but he will be in a minute. Jonathan understood the day was coming when the despised one would be king. And so verse 16 says significantly, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. What house of David? There isn't one yet. But it's with the house of David that Jonathan makes the covenant, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Brothers and sisters, Jonathan is unmistakably great in this moment of response, is he not? He speaks and he acts with a remarkably clear vision of the future and knowing that it was possible that his declaration would put him even against his father. Jonathan is clear eyed that the point comes when those who love the future king must set themselves against his enemies, whoever they may be. The events take their course in our chapter. Jonathan will do as he has promised. He himself would be the one to tell David the results of his test, and he'll do it in this arranged clandestine signal system just in case he can't meet with David in person. The boy shooting the arrows, the message hidden in the instructions that Jonathan will speak in David's hearings. The plan is in place. It's carried out as planned. Frankly, the only surprise for us as readers now is in the vulgar eruption of Saul. The question is asked in verse 27. Why has not the son of Jesse, can't even call David by his name. Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? Either yesterday or today. Now, Jonathan's answer probably went a bit beyond what David had intended. Verse 28. Jonathan answered Saul. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. Oh, so now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. But it's possible that Jonathan just gave it all away there. Because when he used the words, let me get away, he used the very word that Saul himself had used when he rebuked Jonathan's sister in last week's text. Michal, if you remember that story. Why have you deceived me, Saul said, and let my enemy go, referring to David, so that he has escaped, the ESV has, but it's the same word, gone away. We don't know for sure whether it was that word or... The emphasis on David's choice of a family obligation over this duty to the king or whether the reaction would have been the same no matter what. But we see clearly it's the result of David's test. 
Saul responds in fury. Verse 30, the ESV kindly giving us the PG rated translation in verse 30. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Check out the NLT for a more accurate way of phrasing that. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, watch this, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul's enraged. And Jonathan is faced now. Feel it. He's faced with a terrible choice. But evidently he makes it instantly. Verse 32, when Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Exactly the words of David from the start of our chapter, right? Jonathan is for being forced to choose between David and his father, the king. But it seems clear that the choice had in fact already been made, hadn't it? And Saul understood, verse 33 says, he hurled his spear at him to strike him. Why? Because Saul now identifies Jonathan with David in this moment. It's exactly right. Saul understood. And so the end of verse 33 brings us now, finally, to the resolution of the issue raised at the beginning of the chapter. In an amazing understatement. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan understood that the attack on him was the display of his father's hatred of David. Saul was indeed the enemy of the Lord's anointed, you see. Which brings me then in conclusion to, to see clearly the greatness of Jonathan in this chapter. Because the choice is still his. He could even now back out of his commitment to David. But that's not the nature of covenantal love. So verse 34 says, And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David. Exactly what David said he would be. He was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. He was grieved for David, the text says. It's exactly right. And it's so basic, but note that the text doesn't say that Jonathan was grieved for himself. Sad about what this meant for him. Because Jonathan's greatness is seen in the fact that he is putting Yahweh's servant, David, Yahweh's word, the rejection of his own father, in favor of David, and Yahweh's kingdom first. Even though he's the one who officially and normally would be in line for the throne, Jonathan's the one with the power and the authority in chapter 20. That's why I've been dwelling on that but not in the Lord's plans for the future, he's not. All of which is exactly why Saul can't even fathom Jonathan. Cannot understand. The rulers of this age understand neither the wisdom nor the power of God. 
Is it not true? I mean, you just picture Saul blue in the face. You and your kingdom, Jonathan. That's all Saul could see. Jonathan had seen far more. Jonathan was bound and committed by covenant. He would remain faithful no matter the cost. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, says King Jesus. What does Jonathan teach us, brothers and sisters? Well, I like very much how one commentator puts it, so I'll quote it. Jonathan teaches us this quote. That true life does not consist in securing you and your kingdom. But in reflecting Yahweh's faithfulness. Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom was Yahweh's and therefore David's. So Jonathan's life did not need to be centered in his ambition. What can I get? But in God's providence, what Yahweh has given. Continuing with this quotation, even as a believer and not as a crown prince, my reigning passion is not to make my way, my living, or my mark, not to gain my place or to get ahead. Such a realization may be costly, but it is certainly liberating. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. Walking faithfully with your God. Brothers and sisters, it can be costly to follow the Lord faithfully. There will be many tears at the parting of David and Jonathan. They could not know if they would ever see one another again. But David now had leave to go. Go in peace, the king's son said to him, which has nothing to do with the peacefulness of his everyday circumstances. But a far greater peace. And as for Jonathan, well, it may surprise you to see that Jonathan would return to the city. The end of our chapter, isn't it? That Jonathan's path of faithfulness is not to abandon his father, even as he will reject his father's intentions for him. There is surely much personal cost involved for Jonathan in this. Have you ever thought about that? Jonathan continues to sustain his father. He even dies with him in battle. But he never allows that commitment to supplant his prior commitment to Yahweh. From now on, Jonathan fades out from the narrative, which I think is perhaps to achieve exactly what it is that Jonathan has determined for himself. Because personal greatness, at least becoming king, was not his path. 
His would be the path of decreasing as David's would now be of increasing. And paradoxically, it is that that in which we see Jonathan's true greatness. A greatness that knows one's commitment to God must have priority. After all, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.